Well, good morning again. Um, thank you guys for being here. Um, have you ever had a time when you've experienced um, being in someone else's world? Like you, maybe you went to like a, like your parents brought you to uh, bring your child to work day or um, you just kind of got to see one, somebody at their job and kind of see what, what they were doing. I've had a couple of those experiences. Um, I remember seeing my dad. My dad was a UPS driver before he retired. I remember seeing my dad at times while he was out delivering packages. I remember being like, oh, hey, Dad, so this is what you do, huh? And he's like delivering his packages. So that was kind of – I remember when I was a kid, he put us in the truck at one point, which I don't think it, you were allowed to do that. Was that illegal? Okay, so I think – I know we got into the, the UPS truck at one point. That was fun. Um, I also have a friend of mine who um, – his name is Brandon. Uh, he works at, he does, he's a roadie for a lot of different um, big shows. And what he does for a living is he either will do like the lights or the cameras and that kind of stuff. And anytime he comes around, I get to go backstage and kind of see everything. Um, I went to uh, Metallica and I was underneath the stage while Metallica was playing. It was pretty cool. I, I went to where the soundboard was. I was watching everything. That's also where I met Dave Grohl. And I won't tell the story for those of you that have been here a while, um, but I did meet him in there. Um, they <laughs> what the? People clapping for that? Um, anyways, if you don't if you don't know the story, you want to know it. Just come ask me. Okay, I would love to tell it. I tell it all the time. Um, I also went uh, I also went and saw um, Hootie and the Blowfish. You guys remember Hootie and the Blowfish in the '90s? So these '90 people, um, and they were touring with Bare Naked Ladies, and they were at Meriwether, and I got to go, and I got to go on the tour bus, and I got to go backstage. I went on the stage before they all played, um, and then. I got to meet a lot of the blowfish. I did not meet Hootie. I don't know where he was. Um, but I met some of the blowfish, and I met, uh, I saw some of the bare naked lady people. Um, they had a pinball machine that they supposedly bring to every show. It was just all these things that I got to do just because I got to be where he works. And then he went and, and um, had to film it, and I got to get sit like right in the second row with my father-in-law, and I went. It was awesome. Free show. Um, but both those times, with when I saw my dad working or um, with my buddy Brandon, um, here are a couple things I realized. Because I got to go into the truck or see him work or go backstage, I got a little glimpse of, of what it was like. Uh, I got to understand what they did a little more just because I was there. While at the same time, I had no clue what they actually did. I just got a glimpse of it. I got to get a sneak peek of how everything looked. While at the same time, I didn't actually be able, I wasn't actually able to, to fully understand what they do for a living or, or what it's like. Just seeing a glimpse made me rethink the way my dad worked, the way my buddy Brandon worked, while at the same time, I didn't completely understand it. And in the book of Revelation, in chapters 4 and 5, which we're going to be today, if you have your Bibles, you can open up the chapters 4 and 5, um, gives us the same glimpse. It's a glimpse of heaven and the glimpse of being in God's presence. And reading about it can make us appreciate it more, make us understand it a little more, while at the same time, we don't fully understand it. We can't fully grasp it. Last week, if you, if you were here, um, we looked at Revelation 1 through 3. And one thing we made crystal clear with the book of Revelation, in case you weren't here, is that throughout this series, our goal is not to solve the puzzle of Revelation. Our goal is not to be like, okay, here's when we believe Jesus is coming back. Here's how it's going to look. Here's how the end of days. That's not our goal. Our goal is not to talk about pre-tribulation or, or post-tribulation or millennial kingdom or any of that stuff. Because as we learned last week, the book of Revelation is full of so much imagery and symbolism. And some of that imagery and symbolism is meant to be taken literally, and some of it's not meant to be taken literally, and some of it's just a callback to the Old Testament prophets, and there's everything in between. And John doesn't write it in a linear fashion. He talks about one time period, then he skips ahead, and he goes backwards, and it's not a linear time period. So because of that, it's important for us to understand that we don't have to take everything literally or even try to solve everything for us to understand 
what the book of Revelation is trying to tell us. John, who wrote this letter to seven churches of Asia Minor, did not write this letter to us. It wasn't meant for us. It was meant for us to understand something, but it's not written to us. It is written, written to the seven churches that are going through the worst persecution we have seen in human history. That is who it's written to, and we have it so that we can learn something in our time period, but we need to understand first that it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. So if we try to read the book of Revelation to solve the puzzle, then we're missing the point. It's, it'd be an interesting study. It'd be an interesting Bible study to do, but we're missing the point of the book. So last week we read chapters 1 through 3. Today we're going to be looking at chapters 4 and 5. And here, John, he had just addressed the seven churches um, individually, and now here he's talking about a glimpse into heaven. I'm going to read to you chapter 4. If you have your Bible, the Bible app, you can follow along. I'm going to read the whole thing to you. It'll be on the screen as well. But here's what John says next. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first was speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an eternal, like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and there are seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third was like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor the power. For you created all things, and by your will they will be created and have their being. So some of you that have never read the book of Revelation, you might have just heard that and went, this is why I don't read that book. What are we talking about? There's creatures with eyes everywhere, including under the wings, and there's, there's thrones, and there's Jasper, and there's a rainbow somehow in there. What are we talking about in this? And, and I get it. I get it, because we can kind of look at this and try to feel, what does this actually mean? But the, the churches that are reading this, they know what a lot of this means. And there's a lot of metaphors that are used here in imagery that the original audience would know. So I'm going to explain to you some of those imageries for you, and then I'm going to talk about what we can learn from all of this. Here's the first thing we saw. You might have saw this, Jasper and Carnelian. You might have saw that. Um, this represents the first and the last. In Exodus 28, the Lord gives Moses a lot of instructions. And one of the instructions was to fashion a breast piece to, to make decisions. And on the breast piece, there are 12 stones that are placed on it. The first stone is carnelian. The last stone is jasper. So what does that tell us? That means the first and the last. God is the alpha and the omega. God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And beyond that, jasper is a clear stone, kind of like a diamond. Or carnelian is, is a red ruby. The clear or empty of color shows us the glory of the empty grave. And the red shows us the sacrificial love we have through Jesus 
shedding blood. You may say, well, what's up with that rainbow? Well, let me tell you about that rainbow. Rainbow represents promise. The rainbow shone like an emerald and circles the throne. If, if you think of your Bible, and you think of a story that has a rainbow in it, what story would you think of? Noah. So in the story of Noah, the world is flooded, and after the floods go down, God makes a covenant with mankind saying that he will never again flood the world. And what does he use as a sign for this promise? A rainbow. So when a rainbow that shines like an emerald, which represents new life, it'd be green, it's, it represents new life, it is a promise from God to never leave or forsake his people. Then we have those, those thrones and those elders, 24 thrones and elders. This represents God's people, God's people. The number 24 is important, and it tells us who this represents. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David separates the priests by lot in order of ministry, and there's a certain amount of priests. You know how many priests there are? 24, 24 priests. There's also two significant numbers that we see the number 12 in. There's the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. There's the 12 disciples. 12 plus 12 equals Wow, you guys weren't as confident with that one. You knew the rainbow one. You're like, I'm not doing math here. This is church. I'm not, this is not math class. What does this represent? Us. It's God's people. It's God's people. God's people get out of their many thrones, and they bow down in front of the one throne. They leave their, their crowns there, and they surrender to the throne of God. Then you might say, okay, well, what are up with them creatures? Four creatures. Here's what the four creatures represent, and I'm not, I don't have time to explain every aspect of the four creatures, but four creatures represent creation. John sees these creatures with eyes everywhere. One is like a lion. The other one's like a calf. The other is a, a man, and the fourth is like an eagle. And this is a callback to Ezekiel. If you were to read Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel chapter 1, this is a callback to those creatures as well. So the people reading this would know the prophet Ezekiel, what he said, and be like, oh, he's talking about the prophecy that Ezekiel talked about. Now, there's so much debate on whether these creatures are literal, literal or not, or whether they are um, cherubim, which is like an angel or not, and we could have a long discussion on that, but the problem is I don't know the answer. So I'm not going to tell you the answer because I don't know it. But what I do know is that when we are talking about these four creatures, what John is trying to tell us is that we need to understand that all of creation, all of it, from mankind to domestic animals to wild animals to birds, all of them are at the throne day and night crying out, holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, if you write a word twice, then you're really emphasizing that word. But three times, you are drawing as much attention to it as possible for his infinite holiness. God who is on the throne is holy. That means he is set apart. He is set apart from our sin. He is perfect in nature. That's who he is. And for us, that's a good thing. It's a good thing because his holiness is, is the good thing about his holiness is that he always does what is right because there's no other option. He is holy. He is right. He always does what is right because he is holy. The bad thing for us and the bad thing about his holiness is that we are not. And because we are not holy, we cannot be in the presence of holiness because we have sinned and our sin separates us from a holy God, which is why chapter 5 is so interesting. I'm not going to read to you the whole thing, and I, I recommend this week to read through the whole thing. But John here describes a scroll. There's this scroll that is being held on the throne. So there's this thing on the throne with all these creatures and the elders and the thrones all around, and, and there's a scroll. And the scroll has seven seals, which is a reference to Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Daniel. And the scroll is the message of the prophets about God's kingdom coming to earth. 
When you read Scripture, you will constantly read about the kingdom of God coming to earth. In the Old Testament, they talk about the kingdom of God coming. In the New Testament, they talk about the kingdom of God. The scroll represents the message of the kingdom of God. The problem is, in John's vision, no one can open the scroll. It can't be opened. And you know what couldn't, op- couldn't bring the kingdom of God to this earth? It wasn't the law that we read in the Old Testament. The law couldn't bring the kingdom because all the law did was point out that we needed to be saved because we could never follow the law. The prophets couldn't bring the kingdom of God to, have, to, to this earth. The biblical heroes like Moses and David couldn't bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth. The Israelites who were God's chosen people, those are the people that, that he put his blessing on, he protected, and, and, he, and he had a plan for them. They could not bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth. And for us, our good deeds cannot bring the kingdom. I mean, in comparison to a holy God, what are our good deeds? Our good deeds can never measure up to a holy God. Our religion can't bring the kingdom. Religion is just an effort to make ourselves right with God. Our religion can't do it either. And I know one thing for sure, your pastor cannot bring the kingdom of heaven. I'm, I'm glad I didn't get an amen after that. I was hoping you guys clapped for the Dave Roll thing, but good. <laughs> you guys still like me. Okay, it's fine. No one, no one can break the seal. The seal that represents the kingdom of heaven coming to this earth, no one can bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth. And this is what John sees in John chapter 5, starting verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And when he says this, Again, the church would know exactly what he's talking about. The line of Judah comes directly from Genesis chapter 49, 9 through 10. And the root of David comes from Isaiah eleven ten. 10. It says, the line of Judah, the root of David cannot open it. This is what John hears. He hears that. This, what they're doing here is they're describing a messianic king. Because that's what they believed. They believed and they expected in the Old Testament that the messianic king would eventually come and conquer the world and destroy the world, defeat the world so that they, so that the Israelites and the chosen people could finally reign. Then the Messianic king was going to come, take everything over by force. So this is what John hears, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. This is the Messianic king coming to take it over by force. But then look at what John sees. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He heard the conquering messianic king who is going to win by force. But he sees a sacrificed bloody lamb who is alive and ready to open the scroll. So what does this mean for us? God's kingdom is being brought to the world not by a conquering king, but by a crucified messiah who overcame his enemies not by defeating them, but by dying for them. And because Jesus was resurrected, His death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was how he conquered evil. So with John's glimpse into heaven, here's what we can learn. And again, remember this, keep this in mind. We're not here to talk about whether this is literal or not literal. There's so much symbolism. It's not the point. It's not the point of this. Here's what we need to understand. The lamb is next to the one sitting on the throne, being worshiped, by all creation, who are constantly, day and night, crying out, holy, 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 while the Lamb opens the seal so that we can be one of the elders, so that we can go and bow down, get off our thrones, and bow down to the one 
that's on the throne. That we don't, even though we don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy king, that we still can be because of the sacrificial love of the Messiah, the Lamb of God. That's what it means for us. That is our glimpse of heaven. So what can we learn from this, these, these metaphors and symbolisms in Revelation 4 and 5? There's three takeaways that, that, I, that I got out of this. Here's the three. First one, all creation is designed to worship God. All creation is designed to worship God. We believe that God is the creator of all. Everything we see is because God created it and designed it. Um, my wife and I, we live right next to a farm. Um, we, we don't own the farm by any means. We sit right next to it, and we have a little fire pit right there. Um, and like two or three times a year, it smells like a zoo because they do the manure, which is a small price to pay for the view of a farm. And my prayer is that they never sell it <laughs> and it becomes a bunch of houses, which they might. But if they do, you guys can come move over and I'll, uh, we'll, we'll come to your house for dinner, okay? But a lot of times we will sit out there and we'll sit by the fire and I normally like to have like some kind of speaker or some kind of music, but every once in a while we'll just sit by the fire and just sit in silence and just listen. Just listen to what you hear in nature. Have you ever gone for a walk or gone on a hike or just sat at the beach and just sat there in silence. There is so much to hear, from the birds to the leaves to the water, and they have actually done research on this. Uh, they call it bioacoustics. Bioacoustics reveal that we are surrounded by millions of ultrasonic songs at all times. And if we had better hearing, you'd be able to hear and discern everything from, from the singing of the birds to the, to the harmonics of the flies to the drumming of the ants. You would hear everything if we had better hearing. All of creation is constantly worshiping our creator. In fact, here's how it says it in, in Psalms, Psalms 148. It says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds. All creation is designed to worship its creator, all of it, and that includes you. The difference between you and all the animals and everything else in creation is that you have a choice on whether you worship God or not. Don't, now, don't mistake me. You're going to worship. You just choose who you worship because we all are designed to worship. We are all worshiping. Humans are purpose-seeking creatures. We are designed, and I believe, because I believe in a higher power, that I believe that it's the God of the universe who designs us that way to constantly want to worship. But many of us choose not to worship who deserves our worship, but instead we worship other things which ultimately leaves us lacking. We'll worship things like stuff, having enough stuff, having enough money, having possessions, and you'll never have enough. It will always leave you lacking. We worship ourselves, and we always let ourselves down. We worship accomplishments, and you can accomplish everything you want to accomplish, and you're left at the end of the day going, oh, I still am lacking something. We are constantly designed to worship. Here's how, I like how C.S. Lewis says it. He says it this way. God made us, invented us as a, as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. This is before uh, uh, electric cars, okay? So not all now, but anyways, just C.S. Lewis is a while ago. Anyways, um, now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. The, in the book of Revelation, we see all creation 
is designed to, to day and night be by his throne, constantly crying out, holy, holy, holy. What else do we learn? We learn that you can't worship the God on the throne while you're sitting on yours. You can't worship the God on the throne while you're sitting on yours. As long as you have your small throne set up in the throne room, as long as you're on that, you can't worship the God on the throne. See, in, in Revelation 4 and 5, you see 24 smaller thrones with 24 elders. But those 24 elders are not sitting on their thrones, are they? What do they do? They abandon their thrones. They're on their hands and knees. They've surrendered their crowns. They are worshiping the God on the throne, the, the, the king on the throne. That's what they are doing. Here's what we need to completely understand. When we establish our own thrones in the same throne room as the king, it's not rude, it's rebellion. It's what it is. It is us rebelling against the reign of the king. Let me give you a, an analogy here. Imagine I go home after church, and I go home, and there's just this guy there. And I'm with my family, and I'm like, and he's, this guy like put on my clothes, and he's like going through my, my, my vinyl collection, and he's kind of just making himself home. And I'm like, hey, who, who are you? He's like, hey, I'm, I'm Bill. And no, if, um, if there, I don't know, if there, are there any bills in there? If you're a bill, I'm sorry, it's not you. It better not be you. Um, so I go in, I'm like, and he's like, hey, I'm Bill. And, and I, just, I just decided, you know what? I think I can be a better husband to Erica than you. And I think I can be a better father to Brooklyn, Savannah, and Noah. And, like we, and if, if, I'm the, if I'm the husband, we'll have the Eric, Erica thing, which is kind of annoying anyway. So I'm just going to take over. I'm here. I'm staking claim to it. I'm here. Imagine if that happened to you. You walk home, and there's another guy in the house, or there's, there's another female in the house, and, and they're like, nope, this is, I've staken claim to it. It's, it's now mine. I, I can do this better than you. If that happened to me when I got home, you would no longer have a pastor because I'd be in jail, right? I would do whatever it took to get this bill guy out of my house because that, is a respon that, that responsibility was given to me. You can't come into my house and tell me, no, I am now the dad and I am now the husband. There's nothing you can do about it. I will do whatever it takes to get you out of the house. When you and I claim to know more than God, when you and I take control, when you and I refuse to surrender to the king, what we are doing is setting up our baby thrones in the throne room of the king, and it always will result, result in heartbreak and pain. Some of you have trouble worshiping the God who is on the throne because you won't get up from yours. You've set your throne up thinking, you know what, it's just, it's what I decided to do, when it is rebellion against the king who rules. Surrender to the God who is reigning and ruling, the God who knows better, the God who has a purpose for you, which, by the way, you're going to surrender. You just decide if you do it here or after this, because the king is reigning. He just invites us, because he loves us, to have a choice of whether we surrender or not. And then the last one, the last thing I notice here in Revelation 4 and 5, the best taste of heaven on earth is the church. In, um, in the beginning of the Bible, we see that heaven and earth are one. They are completely one, that heaven and earth are right here. They are completely one. They are completely joined together. But when sin enters the world, we force earth out of heaven, that our sin tears it away, and all of a sudden heaven's over here, 
and earth is here. And the entire story of the Bible is about the king trying to bring earth back into heaven. That's the, that's the entire story of the Bible, is the kingdom of heaven coming back into earth. And in the Old Testament, heaven and earth would begin to overlap in one place. There's one place where heaven here and earth here would eventually overlap, and that one place was the temple. In the temple was where heaven and earth overlapped. But the problem was that space and the space of earth is full of sin. And that sin cannot be in the presence of, of the kingdom of heaven, cannot be in the place of holiness. So in the temple, you had to make animal sacrifices. And when you did that, you were now able to participate in the overlapping section of heaven and earth. When you made an animal sacrifice, that's what you were able to do where, where heaven and earth connected. That was the process. That's what you had to do every single time to be in that connection until Jesus shows up. John the Baptist is baptizing people, and everyone thinks that he's the Messiah, because they had heard about the Messiah in the Old Testament. Everyone thinks he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah, and he's constantly preaching, repent, I am not the one, but the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not me, the kingdom of heaven is near. When Jesus shows up, he preaches a very similar message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. And when he teaches people to pray, how does he teach them to pray? At the end, he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the book of John, it says that God became man and made his dwelling among us. Another word there for dwelling would be tabernacle or temple. What, what is John saying here? That Jesus, the place in the Old Testament where heaven and earth overlap, the temple, Jesus is now the temple. That's who he is. He is now the temple. That space in between that we can only get there from animal sacrifices, that's who he is. He is in that spot. He is in the overlapping space between heaven and earth. Jesus goes to, and, and he is the, the overlapping place. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see this overlapping space that Jesus is in? He doesn't stay there. He keeps leaving and coming to this sinful, full of sin world, this, the earth that we've created, and makes safe spaces in all of it. And not only is he the temple, but John says he's the lamb of God. Jesus is the lamb, the lamb that we see in the book of Revelation in chapters 4 and 5. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the temple where heaven and earth meet, but he is also the temple sacrifice so that you can get in it. That's who he is. Going to heaven after you die is not the focus of this book. It talks about it. For sure we can learn about that. It's not the focus. The focus of this book is that heaven and earth are being reunited because of Jesus and will one day be completely united again when Christ returns. And the church, where you are right now, the church is where we intentionally practice and participate with heaven on earth. This is where we do it. Yeah, we do it outside of here, but this is where we intentionally say, I'm going to practice and participate the fact that heaven and earth are now combining because of Christ. It is where we sing praise and worship songs in adoration to the King. It is where Christ is exalted. It is where we surrender ourselves, our mourning, our time, our talents, and our resources to give it up to the King intentionally. It is where we submit to God's truth and His holiness. The church 
made up of different backgrounds and different opinions, come together to participate in earth, to sit to, in heaven on earth, to sing to the king on the throne, who is surrounded by elders and creatures all day crying out, holy, 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 and you have an opportunity here to do that. And for most of us, we come here when we have time. We participate in it when we didn't stay out too late the night before. We, we are here when it's convenient. We serve, but only in a way we want to serve here. We, we give, but we don't fully give. We are here when it fits our preference. You know what you're doing? You're setting up a baby throne. You are invited to participate in the kingdom of heaven here. And for a lot of us, it's just what we do when we can do it. And we forget that there is a God who is reigning right now. And you're invited to surrender to the king who is ruling right now. You're invited to surrender to the king who loved you enough to become the temple and to make it possible for you to get into the temple. That he came and died for us. That we could not do anything to earn it, but he came to us. And we are invited every Sunday to participate in that so that when we leave here, we can then spread the kingdom of heaven to all the other spaces just like Jesus did. So here's what we're going to do when we're gonna, as we close today. Understanding that there is a throne room that all of creation is singing holy, holy to. And that we have an opportunity as the church, in church, to participate in the kingdom of heaven being here. Here's how I want to close today. Frank's going to play a, a closing song. But he's not going to be plugged in. He's not going to sing it into a mic. He's just going to sing it. And I'm going to let you guys have an opportunity in whatever way you want. If you want to stand, you stand. If you want to sit, sit. But this is your opportunity to remember, oh, I have the privilege. It's not a chore. It's not just what you do. You're not doing me a favor by coming here. You're not. It is a privilege that you have to enter into the kingdom of heaven to worship the God that is on the throne. That's your privilege. It's my privilege. So I want to give you an opportunity to worship. I want to give you an opportunity in whatever way you want. And the reason why I want... Um, Frank, to not sing into a mic or sing into, we, I know our music can be kind of loud. We hear it from you. We got it. That's why we have headphone, uh, earplugs in the back. Go grab some if you need them. Um, but this is a chance for us as the body of Christ to sing together, to worship God together, to intentionally say, you know what? I'm going to sing to the God that invites me to surrender to his throne. So as Frank comes up, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to participate however you want. You want to stand? You can stand. If you want to sit, you can sit. If you want to kneel down the way the elders do, you can kneel. Whatever you need to do to intentionally join in on the kingdom of heaven that is overlapping with our sinful earth through Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that as we sing this closing song. Let me pray for us. Dear God, we thank you for being the one who gives us an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of heaven. We thank you for being the king who is ruling. 
We thank you for being holy. And we want to right now get off of our thrones, surrender our crown, submit to you, the God who is reigning and the God who has given us a purpose, the God who deserves all of our worship, the only thing that deserves our worship. That even though we tend to find other things to worship, I pray that right now you help us to focus on you. The holy God that you are, that loves us enough to come and save us. I thank you for the privilege that it is to participate in the kingdom of heaven right here by worshiping you, by hearing about your truth, by serving in the local church, by, by giving, to participate in your kingdom on this earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your son's name, amen. However you'd like to worship, let's worship together.